0: Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them, and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd, and this is Life on the Line.
1: Survival is the
2: rule of the day.
1: Mm, my jaw was broken. I could feel my molars in the centre of the are out. We're, to take country we're out there. At the end talking. of the day, everyone wearing green is a soldier. Very, very communication.
3: Getting yourself blown up does some interesting things to you. a uh, place like the Middle East, it's constantly changing. What
1: we do there is constantly changing. And this,
3: I think, was our own mind. Fit. He holed me up with a broken whiskey bottle of ice for and machine.
0: For today on Life on the Line, Angus Horden spoke with two veterans of the Royal Australian Navy, Sarah Turner and Michael Wright. Angus spoke with both of them about what brought them to the Navy, their experiences at war and beyond. First, Angus spoke with Sarah about her family history and how battle scars can travel across generations.
3: I'm Angus Horden, and for our first conversation on today's episode, I'm speaking with Sarah Turner. Sarah, thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: You're very welcome.
3: I should thank you especially, Sarah, for flying down from Queensland today, and we're very glad to have you, and thank you. Sarah, you're third-generation military. I understand that your grandfather on your mother's side fought in the Second World War.
1: He certainly did. It was, obviously, I brought the documents this morning to show you, and it's been lovely since you asked me to speak. I've really delved into a lot more of my family history than I had before, and I, I received my pop's diary that he actually kept throughout his time in the Middle East and then through when he was stationed in Papua New Guinea. So it's been fascinating to read his history. And I really, it's been lovely to rediscover who he was as a person, as opposed to who I knew as my pop, yeah, he was, um, he was an interesting man. He was born in South Australia. Very, very poor people. They were salt miners. He was born and lived out near Broken Hill in New South Wales before they've moved to South Australia. Very, very, very working class. I don't think you could get any more working class than what my pop was. Initially, I think they're Welsh and Cornish stock few generations back. And yeah, as I said, then they've come out, they're salt miners. He's a bit of a vagabond. He just sort of travels around the country getting work where he can. The area is a bit murky where he's met my nan and all of a sudden they're married with a child. I'm not going to cast any dispersions on that, but it seems very quickly to have happened. Um, And before you know it, yeah, he's a father of four and he's still very, very poor. Um, At this stage, when he's joined the army, they don't even have a home from what I understand. My nan is living... With relatives in South Australia with their four children. So yeah, I can only imagine how hard a time it must have been for them. He sort of joined the war predominantly to feed his family. You know, it was a time they were very poor. They were in South Australia. He had four children. My mum wasn't born at this stage. And really the only option for him at that stage was to join the Australian Army. So he joined as a private. And I think he chose Cook, because I think he thought that would probably be the best. And Yeah, before he knew it in 1940, he was under his basic training and off to war.
3: And where was he posted initially?
1: Yeah, so initially he's been sent to Palestine um, as a cook. And throughout that time, he's been promoted to an acting sergeant in the sergeant's mess as their cook. And when I initially got all these transcripts, I sat with my husband and I think we laughed for about an hour as we read through my pop's diary. And it's fascinating reading. He basically, from what I can understand, has been drinking for about three days. He has somehow fallen asleep in the back of a truck that's crossed into Turkey and he's woken up when the man driving the truck has been shot by an enemy force. It Really, I, it's a bit like a comic story, I think, if, if you took it out of the war situation. But he's basically then, I think, been interned in Turkey for a while. Yeah, so he's been interned in Turkey, it says here. So he's walked into the Middle East in 1941. And then he's been interned in Turkey in 1942. And then it really says nothing for the next six months. So I think he's spent about six months interned. And then he's been released and he's been flown back to Australia. And the fascinating thing is I've actually read through the court documents of his trial. And, yeah, it, it's very interesting to see those family streaks that obviously run throughout DNA lineage because he's he's a bit of a rat bag. Yeah.
3: I think um, it's significant because... I think the allies would have been doing everything in their power to try and not allow Turkey to have any reason to be antagonized, and um for this to potentially have happened because your dad went on a bit of a bender.
1: Yeah, my uh, yeah, my pop. yeah, I think too. Um, what it really reiterated to me was, uh, I guess the detachment he actually felt for the war. It's very clear in reading through his transcripts and reading through his diary that he was there to support his family. He had no interest in the war. He had no interest in the bigger picture. Actually, if you read through his transcripts, he's quite anti-war. This is literally his only option to feed his family and support his family. So I guess it's fascinating reading for me to see how he's coping already through alcohol and through that mateship and through, you know, being, being a little bit silly and doing things he probably shouldn't do, but he literally has no concept of the bigger picture. So mm-hmm. it's quite amusing for me as an officer to picture the officers just ripping their hair out over private mill who's literally gotten drunk and driving a truck into Turkey, mm-hmm. thinking, oh, we had this under control and look at what this guy's doing. But yeah, mm-hmm. I guess from my point of view, looking back, it, it's absolutely fascinating to me that you can see he's purely there to support his mm-hmm. family. As we quoted before, you know, he talks about a lieutenant that's been killed and he's almost detached. It's like, oh, he's killed and the next step is, oh, there's no male. So it's very interesting already how we see that patterning through our family and that that detachment from post-traumatic stress, I guess.
3: Yes, I don't think it could be understated enough that um, today's generation have got no concept of the hardship Australians went through in the Great Depression, and some listeners may think scornfully on your pop's real motive, but if he had an obligation to feed all these kids and there was nothing else to do and you're desperate, and here he's putting his life on the line to provide for his family, and then he finds he's in the most cataclysmic event in world history. And, you know, sometimes someone may take a drink to have a opportunity to settle their nerves or something. But uh, but let's talk about, you know, your mother is the daughter of a war veteran and marries a man who will become one himself. Your father was in the police force before he was up in Vietnam, and can you share his experiences?
1: Unlike my pop, who chose to go to war, admittedly for his family, my dad had no choice in going to war. He was conscripted in 1970. He was actually a police cadet in South Australia. So he's been conscripted, and basically next week he's off to Pakapanyu, so he's won the won the lottery. It was interesting talking to my dad, he's basically said because he was a police cadet, the army sort of looked at them as already having a certain amount of knowledge. They tended to be used as the training for the other conscripts. And like Dad said, a lot of these guys were bankers and, you know, office workers that had no concept of war and never had wanted to be in war, I guess at least the police officers had some idea of conflict. And so dad's gone in and they were basically used as the enemy with these other guys. So dad said he went to Vietnam feeling like he really didn't know anything. He really didn't know anything about being a soldier. And I thought that was so powerful. If you imagine he's such a young man, you know, early 20s and he's off to Vietnam country first time on a plane first time overseas not his choice and before you know it he's yeah he's in a war zone
3: so what was his actual role in vietnam you know acting as an mp or...
1: no no so dad was actually an infantryman. he was in three rar so he's yeah 1971 he's in vietnam as an infantryman um and then he's returned back to australia in the police force in 1972 When he's come back, he's basically... They were doing the marches against Vietnam, Mm. a lot through South Australia. So my dad has literally got off the plane from Vietnam, gone straight back into the police force, and he's defending these civilians and being told, if these soldiers step out of line, you're to arrest them. And mum said to me on reflection, she had no idea at the time, but so dad's come back for these moratorium marches, and he's basically disappeared for three days mum can't find him, the police inspectors ringing her saying, where's your husband? And mum says, I have no idea. So mum at the time couldn't conceptualise, obviously, as most people couldn't, that dad's literally stepped off the plane and now being told to arrest the very men that, you know, three weeks ago he was telling to give his life for. And these students are protesting and... He has a wife now. He has responsibilities. Where does he go to? We, you know, PTSD really wasn't spoken about, and that's what Mum said. She spent so much time being angry at him for being this selfish man, not realising that the demons he was fighting just, you know, to get up and go to work.
3: Did he relive any of those experiences with you? Because you're military yourself, yeah, um, and he could therefore feel that he could speak in a way that you could understand.
1: My dad, I think. And he wouldn't mind me saying this. I think the damage is really done now. He doesn't. He doesn't open up very much at all. When he's come back from Vietnam, he's obviously he's kept, as Mum said, and he will talk about kept searching for that high. So he's become an undercover drug squad detective. He's, you know, he's really lived a dangerous life and constantly searching, I guess, for that sense of belonging again, the comradeship and the adrenaline. Basically, my mum's had us children, Dad really they've said okay well we can't keep living this life so they've actually gone into hotels which is probably the worst next thing you could do so my sister and I've grown up in pubs the question about whether he talks to me he he really no there's sort of an unspoken bond i guess between my dad and i we we get each other and it's okay not to talk about it it's just a sense of peace with each other and I think Dad struggled a bit with me when I quit drinking. We used to drink a lot together and talk about things and I've found obviously different outlets now that doesn't involve alcohol and I think maybe sometimes Dad feels like I've detached a bit from him, which isn't the truth at all. It's just obviously for myself and my family, I need to find better ways to cope with my own post-traumatic stress.
3: So, So really you've had quite a hard childhood.
1: It was hard, I guess... Now as an adult, because I'm quite an empathetic soul, I hated. Even as a child, I understood my dad's suffering, and I I was always constantly trying to help him, trying to heal him. I could always see he was in pain. So even when he was acting out or aggressive, it was more an empathetic approach, and I wanted to help him. I never. It's interesting. I think my sister took it a lot more personal, and she gets angry about instances where she felt neglected or she felt she was made to be an adult too early. I'm tend to look at it more and I, I never took it personally from my dad. I always felt like he was in pain. Yeah, so I wouldn't say it was hard. It was very very colorful. I guess in his way he he truly is one of the people that's seen the absolute worst of humanity on every from every angle. So to I guess my dad's primary job was just to prepare us for a world that I guess he saw as hostile and dangerous. So lots of little tests of strength, you know, patrolling darkened backyard in the middle of the night and walking down alleys to get his Chinese takeaway, you know, his little girls, little things in his mind. He was training us to be stronger, which you'd sort of look now and go, gee, that's a bit crazy.
3: <laughs> do, do you feel that training was a natural lead on for you then to join the forces?
1: Yeah, look, I am I mean, I, I'm a bit of a hippie now. I think it's written in the stars. I think uh, it was my almost my destiny to become that third generation, to break this patterning throughout my family. And this patterning, I mean, we're talking about three generations, but it goes back a lot further. My dad originally is from Belfast and all of my Belfast ancestors are Queen's Guards.
3: So your pop and your dad are both in the army, Mm -hmm. but you joined the Navy.
1: The Navy was an easy one for me because I looked at the army and when we first joined, there really wasn't as many opportunities for the women. So to me, there was only really one service that really gave me the freedom to do that that was equal across the board and that was Navy. So and I I loved the idea and I still do of travel and freedom and I guess the Navy was a no brainer for me. So
3: you decide to join the Navy, Sarah, and that leads you to the academy and your training?
1: It does. So nineteen ninety seven my parents have moved from South Australia the year before and I basically didn't do year eleven. I came to Queensland and travelled with my mum and dad and that is actually one of the happiest memories of my life. And from there I went to year twelve in Warwick in Queensland at the Scots College and from there joined the Navy. So I just literally turned eighteen. No, seventeen, sorry. Yeah. I turned eighteen when I was at the Academy. I remember crying most days at the Academy. I'm sure a lot of people probably experienced that. Yeah, I was incredibly homesick because one of the things with my family is that it's always been such an incredibly tight bond. As you can understand with my dad, it's always been there's us and everyone else is the enemy. So to be ripped away from that quite young and thrown into this military environment, yeah, I, I found it really difficult for the first year Then the second year I sort of found my groove a little bit and then um, the training at the academy was interesting. I think at the time when we were at the academy, it probably wasn't as well run as it could be. A lot of the third years were in charge of us, a lot of those hazing type things that you hear a lot about in the American colleges, a lot of that stuff really went on when we were first there. A lot of inappropriate sexual behaviour, a lot of things like this, which you would expect in a college of thousands of young fit children that aren't being properly monitored so yeah it was an interesting time a lot of people I think either sunk or swim it was a bit survival of the fittest so
3: and and from the academy you then get your postings
1: I don't remember a lot of the details anymore about the navy I remember Anzac was the first ship I sort of joined and that was the biggest eye-opener for me ever even though I'd grown up in hotels and I'd seen some pretty inappropriate human behaviour over my life. (laughs) This is a whole new level, even for me. So, yeah, my first sort of trip was up to Vietnam, which is interesting in itself. Uh, We opened the Friendship Bridge, I think. I ended up, and we didn't find this out till years later, I'd actually painted an orphanage where my dad had previously visited. So that was incredible. And we didn't find that out until about 10 years later. when My dad actually went back to Vietnam with my mum and there was a picture of me on the wall painting the orphanage on wow. Anzac. And Dad went, oh, I know that face.
3: Well, how proud would he be? Huh? Yeah,
1: he was incredibly proud. So, yeah... Um, Lots of, sort of, we do that sea SEAC time, which is where you get your basic training. So you're learning warfare and you're learning basic navigation and basic sea And your
3: particular posting on board was?
1: Yeah, so we sort of work through the phases. We get to different ships as we get our, what they call the officer of the watch ticker, which just basically means you're qualified to drive the ship under the captain's supervision. So you're the officer in charge of the ship. About two years to sort of go through that, and we do various postings throughout that to lots of different ships over the a- and time. And that's what
3: you aspired to do?
1: It's a bit like a churning mill at the time. You know, you sort of get in the Navy cycle and they direct you. So, yeah, you become an officer of the watch, and then you can choose to specialise where you go, whether you go into warfare, navigation.
3: Your real action really starts when you join Canimbala. But before we go into that, let's talk with Michael. Michael, welcome to Life on the Line. Thank you. Michael, can you tell us about your early childhood, please? Uh, my early childhood, well, I'm one of seven
2: kids, so uh, it was always exciting. We always had a little gang to get around with. We're always sort of best of mates. I remember I was telling Sarah a few days ago stories about uh, us getting into trouble when we were kids. So my younger brothers in particular, I'm got four. Um, one of uh, four younger brothers, and I've got three older uh, siblings as well. And uh, pretty much when one of us was in trouble, we were all in trouble because <laughs> we'd pile on. So, yeah, it was, uh, it was a lot of fun, a lot of... Um,
3: Lot of shared connections with each other as well and in your family is there any military heritage before you joining up uh
2: not that i know of no i think we're like a long line of uh farmers and and uh tradies so there's uh my, one of my brothers has been doing a family history recently and he's found lots of uh rural farmers in ireland and england and tradesmen so uh, tinsmiths and cartwrights and things like that okay so what makes you the navy guy in the family I had no idea about the Navy, I had no idea about what I wanted to do but I remember just reading through the job descriptions and the one that really stood out for me was a seaman officer at the time and I liked it for the variety, it was there was a whole lot of different things that I could do, the list of things that a seaman officer can end up doing was what attracted me.
3: As part of your training you do basic courses at various postings around the nation but you end up at the academy where Sarah was as well. Tell us about your academy experience.
2: I really enjoyed it. It was uh, probably something that was wasted on us at the time, but I actually enjoyed it. Good camaraderie that uh, Sarah talked about. I enjoyed playing the sport and going out, and I enjoyed the fact that um, you were actually there to get your degree and to get the military training at the same time. I think I probably drunk a lot too much while I was there. Um, that was probably one of the, the bad things about it. Like The trouble that we're in was never that bad, but uh, it was the wrong sort of culture. I remember getting myself into trouble asking questions about about the culture as well, because it was that time a thing called the Grey Review just occurred. There was supposed to be this big reform going on. I remember asking a dumb, well, what was looked like a dumb question at the time, to the uh, commandant. Said, "When are we going to uh, do this reform?" And he was all offended because he was like, "No, no, we're already doing it. This, this, this is happening." I'm just sitting there. He's going, oh, "Okay, righto."
3: Yep. And you're you not seeing any change. <laughs> no.
2: Again, what Sarah was talking about, the third years being in charge. They were trying to make it military, but we were under the direction and tutelage of people who had been in two years themselves and were at the academy getting a degree. So they were the ones that were telling us what to do and trying to indoctrinate us into the military, but they hadn't actually seen the military themselves.
3: And do you remember your time at the academy bumping into Sarah, is that where you both met initially?
2: We didn't actually hang out that much at the academy. And it was probably the fact that uh, I was sort of in my own circles, but you were, it was very tribal as well. So I was in Bravo Squadron, which uh, you know, is basically just the, the buildings that are collected together. So we didn't really associate with uh, Sarah squadron. Uh, we did hang out a little bit on um, what was called single service training and that was probably um, what I enjoyed most about the academy, actually going away and doing this single service training. I came back once and we we're, we're on parade and there's an um, army sergeant comes up in front of me and I was a bit of a bumbler, like I was terrible at marching, which I'm not embarrassed about either because it's terrible to do anyway. But he comes up right in front of my face and says, Mr Wright, do you enjoy being back at, uh, back at the academy? And... I, and how was, how was your single service training, or SST as they called it? I, I said, oh, I was pretty good, a bit less of the um, the rubbish that goes on here at the academy, Sergeant. And he goes, oh, my God, Mr Wright, don't you know this is a training establishment? I said, oh, sorry, Sergeant, I thought uh, Creswell was too, but yep, OK. And he just turned around walked away in disgust. <laughs> I was standing there smiling because I knew I'd got nothing under your skin. Excellent.
3: Can you share with us some of the highlights before you were posted to Canimbla? Well, it was still all training. So
2: I actually started my, um, my semen officer training while I was still at the academy, which was supposed to accelerate us into it. So there's a training pipeline, basically, and it takes a long time to get trained and qualified to do what you're doing. The highlights for me were always around the Navy class in particular that we, that we were part of. Uh, and it was, it was a pretty small class, and it was about 60, 40 females over males. Like We actually had more females in the class than males. And the semen officers in particular bonded quite early on because we we're already doing our... Specific navy training in the last year at the academy, and for us, that was um, it bonded us. Like I'm still really good friends with some of those people that, or with all of those people, basically that uh, we did that um, seaman officer training with, and we can come in now to old conversations that are 20 years old as if uh, as if we were just having them a few minutes ago. And what was canimba like? Uh, Canimbla was a bit of a surprise, a bit of a shock for me. I was actually, it was phase four, so Sarah and I were both on phase four. That's the final phase where you get qualified as a as a seamen officer. And I was actually posted to Anzac for phase four. And at 11 o'clock in the morning, one morning, the um, main broadcast says, uh, Sub-Lieutenant Wright, captain's cabin. Uh, of course, I thought I was in trouble. Uh, so I went up there, um, sat in front of the captain and he said, how would you like to go to the Gulf? And I said, oh, that'd be pretty good, sir. Thanks. Yep. Um, and he said, what about this afternoon? And I went, yeah, I guess so. And he goes, well, Canimbla's is out in the harbour and they're waiting for an officer of the watch. So um, you're going. And I said, okay, I guess I'll go and pack my bag. <laughs> so at 11 o'clock in the morning, I was told that we were sailing at uh, four o'clock in the afternoon. I had to go and get on Canimbla. So I packed my bag and waited for the boat to come pick me up and went over to Canimbla.
3: I'm Angus Horton and I'm back with Sarah Turner and Michael Wright. So you both find yourselves posted to Canimbla, but firstly, can you tell us a bit about Canimbla?
2: Canimbla was uh, a fat ship, so it was somewhat disdained. I I came from Anzac, which is one of the frontline ships, big guns on it, missiles, all that sort of stuff, radar, able to control aircraft, and uh, Canimbla is big, but it's a troop transport ship. That's its, its main role, or an am- amphibious assault ship. Uh, it's big though, like it was 8,000 tonnes, or just over 8,000 tonnes. And the, well, When we we're talking about Canimbla with each other, we'd say it's 8,000 tonnes of twisted steel and sex appeal, because <laughs> it wasn't a particularly
3: beautiful <laughs> ship, but we loved her anyway. <laughs> Before we go further though, we should just set this time in history. We had the catastrophic attack on the Twin Towers on September 11. Can you guys share your memories of that event?
1: It's strange, Angus. This is one of the few things I vividly do remember about the time. I was HMS Watson and I was already scheduled to join Canimblin. She was actually doing a world trip and I was super excited and it was all my dreams come true of travelling the globe and we had some fabulous ports that I'd only ever dreamed of visiting. And I woke up because I'd left my telly on and I actually watched the Twin Towers fall live. And I remember lying there thinking, I think my world trip is off. Like that was literally my first thought. And I remember thinking this will forever change my life in that moment. And I just almost a sense of detachment, watched the towers fall and watch what was unfolding and thought it's going to be a very interesting morning. That was my initial thought.
2: I woke up uh, with the alarm clock was uh, Andrew Denton on the radio. There's something that struck me about the way he's speaking. Like normally he's the funny guy and he's got a light-hearted voice, but that day it almost sounded like he was crying when he was talking. Mm-hmm. And that's what struck me as soon as I woke up and I was listening to him talking. And that's what he was talking about, the, the Twin Towers straight away. As soon as I woke up and heard that, I knew something big had happened. And I just went, oh, no, like I actually felt how big that was, that planes crashed into the um, Twin Towers and that it sounded like a terrorist attack. And I knew it would have big implications
3: for me. So basically, you'd both joined the Navy. you have both done the training. Now you're both off to war. Basically, you're joining, you know, a ship. You're off to the Middle East. Uh, you're junior officers, you know, as officers of the watch, and you have responsibility. And you're going into real stuff now, and you don't really know what's going to happen in the Gulf. Sarah, share your experiences of your duties
1: yeah, it's an interesting thing, um, post-traumatic stress in itself. It almost protects you from a lot of memories, I think. It it sort of um, disconnects you from a lot. And I don't have a lot of real visceral memories of my time in the Gulf. I remember looking back with hindsight, the blessed ignorance of youth, I really don't think I understood the magnitude of what war was or really what responsibility was, because I guess up to this stage, there was always someone above us responsible. There was always someone guiding. And I guess it really became real to me when we went through Diego Garcia. And I remember there was a lot of coalition forces there at the time and I remember America, the American group, America were playing and I remember thinking they're a really big headline band to come out to Diego Garcia and it really was the first time I'd seen all of those walks of life, all of those different nations, all of those... Uh, different troops, and there it, it, it was just everyone there. And the Americans, I guess, are very aggressive in their war culture. And it really started to get a bit more serious for me then. I really started to, I guess, grasp the magnitude of this. And then, as an officer of the watch, for any person that's sailed the seas, going through the Straits of Hormuz is fairly eye opening. And that was really the first time I went, ah, oh, okay. Like, As, you know, Dorothy would say, we're not in Kansas anymore. And that's when I really, really, really felt uh, the weight of responsibility, I guess. And that I think up to that point to me, my military career, I wouldn't say it had been a joke, but it had been fairly lighthearted. It had been training and fun with friends and drinking in pubs and saying we're in the military. And I guess that was the first time coming through there. And Michael would tell a great story of the cigar boats. And that really just made me go, oh, with Sarah like this this is really serious stuff and I guess that was the first time too that I really when when I'm standing up here alone at night you know in charge of this ship and you know there's a lot a lot of people that are relying on me to be aware and to be doing the right thing and to you know be proactive and preemptive, and I guess that was the first time, yeah, I'd really felt that weight of responsibility and if you remember at the time I was only just turned 21. Yeah, I guess that overwhelmingly are my memories of feeling that responsibility and I guess not really probably being prepared for that responsibility. I was still a kid myself. I I think at that stage I was still playing at what I thought responsibility and leadership looked like. Obviously now with hindsight I have a much better idea but yeah.
3: Michael, tell us about those cigar boats.
2: Uh, That was actually... As we were coming back out of the Gulf, it was a really dark night in the Gulf. There was no moon, there was no stars or anything like that, a bit of a haze. And I hear from the um, ops room, they said, have you got a contact out at, said where it was, like Green Three Zero. said, no, I don't have anything there. And they said, well, we've got something on radar. I said, no, there's nothing there. And it, we, we kept doing a, a back and forth and I told the lookouts to keep a lookout out there and see what um, see what it actually was. And eventually the principal warfare officer, the, the PWO, turns up on the bridge and he goes, right, there's something out there that... We we keep seeing it. There's a you know really um, strong radar contact, and I said, mate, I, I can't see it. I don't know what you're talking about. Like we've I've had the um, lookouts looking out there. I can't see it on radar. Like the the radar's a bit um, difficult to tune. You know, sometimes you can see clouds on it. And I said, that's that's what it is. It's a cloud. And pretty much as I'm having this conversation with him, I just hear one of the lookouts shout, "Alarm! Target!" I go out to the bridge and, and see him there. I call the captain of the bridge straight away. Captain Sir, officer watch, request to come to the bridge urgent. As an officer watch, you never. Tell the captain to come to the bridge, urgent. But I did on this occasion. I went out and I saw what looked like something out of Mad Max coming over the horizon. There's all these um, this big cloud of um, well, like haze on our starboard bow, so on the right-hand side of the ship, out the front. As I got closer, we could see that there were there were boats. Uh, and moving really fast, like really coming up on us quickly. The P-Way was gone. The captain by this stage was standing on my shoulder. I said to him, I'm not really sure what to do here, sir. I probably need to come up in speed. We're already going as fast as we could. And I said, should I turn away or towards? Because it was also a rule of the road situation, as in rule of the road is uh, the the rules that uh, govern transport of ships at sea. So you work out whether or not you um, try and avoid traffic. And, And in this case, it would have been right for us to come to come right to to avoid that traffic, and he said, "No, no, just stand on lefty." They got closer. They kept coming towards us, and I said to the, um, "Has
3: he called action stations yet?"
2: We had called action stations by that stage okay. yet. So a lot of things all happened just really quickly, all, all at once. So the comms team had already told headquarters about it. Things happened really quickly. So I, I'd actually done that myself. And as these boats got closer, one sort of stood out for, or for me anyway, I, I saw one stand out. And it, it turned towards us, and I said to the gun mount that was near me, "I think it's mount." I so said Mount 3 with a flare and gauge, so they put up an illumination flare and the mm. first illumination flare just like skidded out along the water. The boat turned away, the gun mount put out another um, illumination flare that went straight up in the air and that's what they meant to
3: do. This is a star shot which illuminates the whole area.
2: Yeah, so it's a it's a really bright white light that comes out. And, yeah, shows us everything. So it was clear as day there was these boats everywhere. They were There was hundreds of them. Just as that second flare went up, they turned away. It was clear then that they weren't coming for us and our rules of engagement were really tight. Basically, we've always got the inherent right of self-defence. We can always defend ourselves if we're under threat. But these boats weren't a threat to us anymore. They turned away instantly as soon as that second flare went up. Everyone just relaxed straight away. Like I could, even though the captain wasn't that close to me, I could feel him, I could feel his shoulders drop because still fresh in our mind was the coal, uh, the USS Cole, which had been attacked by a small boat that had driven up to it and then uh, exploded itself and and ripped a big hole on the side of it. Even though you think about a lot of things in those times, that was one of the things that I thought about. I had um, 600 people on board that I was responsible for and solely responsible for. I was literally talking to the guys who could, shoot at those boats and stop them coming towards us and on the radio or on the um, internal circuits I could talk to the, um, the missile firers down the back because we had some army missiles on board as well that we would have been able to use to, against those targets but there were so many of them in such a swarm that we wouldn't have had any chance
3: of um, shooting all of them so it was it was stressful. I, I think it's difficult for people to appreciate unless they've served and really get this the onerous rules of engagement that are placed on you because you're thinking, gee, I'm, I I, need to defend myself. But if, for example, you could have engaged those guys, and they could have said they're harmless fishermen, and that you've been the belligerent, and then it becomes, you know, a world incident. And you remembering that you're one of the capital Australian ships over there, so you're representing the whole nation, and the wrong decision can totally rewrite our political uh, positioning over there. Can you comment, on how you find the, those rules of engagement. In, in a situation where you say, how, Skipper, how much closer do I allow this guy to come before I shoot? Well, on,
2: on watch, so on any normal watch, we make hundreds of decisions. So that's just one of a number of decisions. We learn our rules of engagement really well. We know what we're allowed to do. The most free one that we have is the inherent right of self-defense. We always have that in the back of our mind. But at the same time, it weighs on you when you, you think you're going to kill someone or you might have to actually kill someone to do it to, to protect your ship. By the same token, I wouldn't hesitate to do it if I did have to protect the ship. So the, the rules of engagement tighten us but they, and tighten down what we can do, but that's for, for good reason. We know them off by heart. And we know when we're allowed to attack. We know the um, escalation of force that we're allowed to. So the escalation of force is uh, first we tell them to turn away, then we tell them again to turn away then we tell them if they don't turn away we'll fire at them so they they're all steps in the rules of engagement process where everyone who is involved in that process knows them off by heart they are useful because they actually protect us as well so if we act within the rules of engagement then we're protected from uh, recriminations so I, I wouldn't hesitate to make a decision that would uh, bring harm against someone else if it protected the ship.
3: Michael, for our listeners, can you actually explain what the Straits of Hormuz is?
2: The Strait of Hormuz is is an international strait and we learn about um, all sorts of different maritime legislation while we're doing our training and an international strait means that uh, it can't be closed no matter what uh, wartime conditions. Rights
1: of free passage.
2: Yeah, it means that... international ships will always be allowed to go through it and it can't be closed by one of the nations the strait of Hormuz is one of those international straits and it's uh, off yemen in the um, arabian gulf very narrow i think it's only a, a mile wide which is about two kilometers wide at its um, narrowest point point. and on our way through into the gulf we went through the strait of Hormuz, and we were buzzed by uh, maritime patrol aircraft from yemen and they were they don't threaten but they they say you know get out of our waters you're not allowed to come through here this sort of stuff and we were using the rules of engagement to tell them stay away from us we're going to transit through here this is an international strait we're allowed to be here which actually builds up customary law so when a ship transits through an international strait then the next time they do it they say well we did it last time we're allowed to come through again so that's that's one of the ways of that laws of the sea are created so when we were coming back through to to leave the gulf that's the strait that we were going back through again we had to go through it again but at this time it was it was night time so you've got darkness narrow water not very navigable it's close to um, enemy territory or, you know, actors that might want to do you harm. There's all sorts of different threats there as well. So apart from the navigation in the, in that it's, it's busy with lots of different ships there, we've also got um, lots of smugglers and pirates as well. The region's known for piracy. So it's a, um, a place where we're on high alert already. We've already got the ship um, closed up more than we normally would and, yeah, makes it
3: tense going through there. Sarah, can you tell us about some of your experiences at this time?
1: Yes, yeah, certainly. So Michael just painted a beautiful picture of that. I think it's hard when you sit and talk about it to capture adrenaline that's through the body. You do get taught rules of engagement and, you know, you do close up to heightened states and all of these types of things. But it's interesting the body's response when you're actually in this situation and the adrenaline, that tingly feeling through your body, your mind tends to clear and forget a lot of things too. It's it's very interesting. And especially as a young officer, you really do look to those senior officers around you for guidance and things like this. That I remember that incident with Michael and I, I remember Probably I've never told you this, but I remember thinking, oh thank God, right he's on watch and not me. <laughs> that was my initial, my initial thought was, Oh, he's doing a great job. Well done, mate. I'm so glad it's not me in the hot seat. Because it really is even, you know, the junior people everyone looks at you because I think it's really important to clarify to people when you say those words. So for me, when I say Lieutenant Turner has the ship, they're the words we say, and that means that everything that happens on that ship Every single thing that happens on that ship is my responsibility. That means I'm responsible if the chef starts a fire in the galley. means I'm responsible for the boat that's going off the back end. It means I'm responsible for the able seaman cleaning his weapon where I can't even see him. That's just a level of responsibility you can't comprehend, I guess, unless you've taken that level of responsibility. And that's something very unique to Navy. You are the captain's representative so I think in moments like what Mike was talking about, um, the level of responsibility you feel as a 20, 21 year old is phenomenal. And then, you know, when these things happen. So one of the incidents for me was we had um a lot of our um experiences were in preventing smuggling vessels and just investigating and apprehending and all of those sorts of things. We had an American detachment with us that predominantly were um, I guess, our lead force, would you say, Michael, in?
2: Uh, they were one of the boarding parties, but they were kind of doing their own thing. Oh, like they were, um,
3: they were like off...
1: Like a detachment with us. Yeah. Surveillance,
3: intelligence so, so collection. Are they American Navy or are they American Coast Guard or Army or Special Forces or... Special, Special forces.
1: forces. So one of the responsibilities of them was to sort of... They would go out as our lead force and investigate these vessels. So we would get... Um, Again, we have to talk carefully because a lot of it's classified. And, and they'd
3: be going out in, in inflatables and... Yeah, no,
1: helicopters. They, they, they had special boats. They had special boats. So this is
3: one of the... Like the stealth boats? Uh,
2: yeah. They, mm. This is one of the things with uh, Canimbla. It had a capability... The capacity, yeah. Yeah, it had a capability that... Yeah. The um so called capital ships, you know, the, the war fighters didn't have yeah. because yeah. Yeah. We're ab-
1: on the front. Yeah,
2: we're able to project craft. our power. We had landing craft on the front and mm-hmm. these big fast patrol boats that the um that the Americans could use. Helicopters.
1: Helicopters. Yeah.
2: We had four helicopter spots that we were able well, actually two in very two in the Gulf. Asset, yeah, yeah, very useful assets. Yeah. So they really able to project watch, power.
1: A lot of things yeah. going on, yeah. So in, back to what I guess we were saying about the stories, they would go out as sort of a lead force and apprehend these vessels and investigate them. And once we'd sort of received intelligence... Um, from ashore and we would be directed who was sort of coming down and who we had to keep an eye out for. One particular night, I was involved as a steaming party. I wasn't on the boarding party, I was a steaming party. So my job was to go out to the vessel that had been apprehended and steam it back to a holding area where it could then be processed by a coalition force. So one particular night, I I can't remember exactly the time, very dark, dark 100, as we say, woken up and said, look, we've got a vessel, the Americans have taken it down. We need you to head out and sail it back to this holding ground. I think the holding ground was Kaminsky at the time.
2: Kaminsky was just a a circle in the sea. Could have been
1: anywhere, just what we called it. A holding pen. A holding pen in the middle of the
2: ocean. Shallow enough for them to anchor, and we just left them there.
1: So we've um, taken a small steaming party. We've boarded the rib, as we call it, a rigid, rigid inflatable boat, and we've sailed off to sail this vessel back to the holding ground and again you got to remember we're still young even at navigations so i've basically got a handheld gps and been told go from here and take this boat to here so we've i've got on this boat and it was clear for me i can't talk a lot about it um but it was clear for me that it had been an excessive use of force uh against this boat um you know there was wounded personnel the boat had been
3: forcefully taken
1: very very forcefully taken yeah it felt very wrong so i've basically gone up to the bridge and i am sailing this boat back and I almost felt detached from the scene as it was unfolding and I just said to myself, just stay focused on just getting to the holding ground. Just get a fix on the chart, which means I know where I am in the ocean and then get this boat to the holding ground and get back to Canimbla. Job done. Job done. Because the Americans basically, with a wink and a smile, said, We've subdued them for you, Sarah, over to you. And they've all sailed off and I've gone, oh, this does not feel good. So as I'm sailing this boat back, um, all sorts of things, I guess, uh, nerves, adrenaline. I was struggling to get a fix on the chart. I, you know, and this is I try and explain to people things that are second nature to you in a hostile situation flee your mind. So I would have plotted a hundred million fixes on a chart. It would, I could do it in my mm. sleep to this day. Yet in that moment, do you think I could work out a latitude and longitude? It took me about five minutes. I calmed myself. I. I plotted the fix and I was like, okay, I know where we are. The captain of the vessel that they'd apprehended was very hostile. Obviously, um, he didn't speak English. I'm I'm not sure. So what nationality? I don't know.
2: They were usually Iranian, yeah. But sometimes they'd come from the subcontinent, so there might be Bengalis or um,
3: Bangladeshi's. And you're lucky if there's any English being spoken. Here.
2: They'd know. They'd know enough. So depending how uh, experienced they were, we might get ones that uh, had worked in other maritime environments where you pretty much need to know English or basic English mm. to to navigate. But a lot of them, yeah, didn't know much more than that. And, and then so the crew, that, sorry,
3: your, the, your guy didn't.
1: Well. He certainly did it, it with me. Yeah. yeah. So and I think, yeah, looking back, it's probably quite a good tactic of his. So as we're sailing, and again, if you picture yourself, it's pitch black, the the boat's torn apart, there's people bleeding, there's all sorts of things going on. And I've got the fix on the chart and I've plotted a course and I've basically directed him and said, I want you to sail this way. And I guess a little bit inexperienced, I've then taken that. Okay. He'll do it. He'll do it. And I'm sort of half monitoring it, half monitoring the rest of the situation because we've got other people on board. You know, we're all armed. Um, they're trying to maintain the crew and all these other things that fight for your attention. I don't even know the passage of time, but I've looked again. I've thought, he's not steering. And I've told him, no, no, you, could, you go back. Like, you go back on course. And he's, oh, okay, you know. And then I've put another fix on and basically it's interesting. I talked with Michael about this because to this day I I can't remember what was on the chart. I think it was a wreck that he'd basically knew was there and been directing us to. And he was as trying I've, to
3: take you down.
1: He was trying to take us down. And as I've basically plotted the fix, we're on top of it. And in that moment I just went, uh, and it's almost a it's very strange. It's almost a peaceful feeling it's almost like oh my god and you hit it no good so I held my breath and basically thought in that moment that's a big failure that's not good Sarah held my breath waited for it to all go to custard and he and it's again it's hard to explain but I looked at him in that moment and he looked at me and I knew exactly what he was doing like I, I knew and I looked at him and we both sort of looked at each other and nothing happened and I went ah and the rest of the I was a bit more alert I guess after that that was a big moment for me and we sailed back to kaminsky we went back to the ship and so so
3: basically you identified in split second time that danger. you were going to hit yeah. this wreck you're able to correct course and
1: no i don't think i did correct course i think we but sailed, you avoided it uh, through the mercy of god not through anything no. i'd done <laughs> whatever the charter danger was nothing happened so I've come back to the ship and in that moment I instantly, which is my go-to anyway through my family history and now understanding myself better, I instantly felt like a failure. I have extremely self-depreciating thoughts by nature. Nothing's ever good, that perfectionist type personality. So I'd already set myself up as a failure in my own mind and this just solidified to me how much I was Did anyone
3: else know on board? Because if no one else knew, the problem was only with you.
1: Yeah, this has been very interesting. Michael and I have talked about this a lot.
3: While we're on Canimbla, we also track the progress
2: of the vessel that's been steamed and it's much easier on Canimbla. It's obviously less stress but also we have better sensors, better um, charts. We have electronic charts as well whereas, like Sarah said, she had an uh, electronic GPS, a handheld GPS and a paper chart and that's it, plus she's got people ste- um you know, standing over yeah, and she's yeah. fully armed and wearing a, a helmet and, you know, body armor and all that sort of stuff. So we can also track the position of another vessel and that's what that's what we did. And I think it came up, so Sarah told me, I think first, I don't know if she told anyone else, but down in the um, smoker's area, she's just like um, mainlining <laughs> cigarettes, just <laughs> smoking really profusely and she goes, oh, I you know, stuffed up. She didn't say stuffed up, but she, uh, I, I stuffed up right. would have
1: used much more colourful language. Yep.
2: Um, I've seen some nasty stuff over there and uh, I, I nearly ran it aground, nearly ran it into a wreck. I said, um, well, you didn't, you know, and these things happen, and it's a hundred thousand ton ship doing you know, thirty k's an hour, so it's hard to turn around. And uh, I think in future we should just be using our own crew to to steer these vessels. And yeah, we talked through that a little bit later. The navigator brought it up as a um, a learning point for us and showed us on the chart. And he looked at the chart that Sarah had brought back with her and said, oh, you know, this fix is pretty much on top of a um, on top of a wreck. And it was a real like, heart-sinking moment for us because we could all be on a, say, me and the other officers of the watch because we could all do the same thing. And Sarah was um, sort of renowned as one of the best officers of the watch that we had. She was um, supremely confident and if she made that mistake, then it was definitely something we could all do.
3: Sarah, look, thank you for sharing that. I mean, certainly you can reflect back now and see that that time in the golf was really your Everest moment. But but I think it really brought you two together as as good friends. Can you share how you were able to support each other?
1: We didn't actually like each other. <laughs> I can remember when them telling me Michael Wright's coming as the other side of dinner. I remember going, "Oh, I hate that Joker! Like this is oh, this is not going to be good because we'd never really been friends, had we? No, nah, I don't I, know what had happened. I think I was just a judgmental.
2: Well, I was probably a bit of a jerk, but yeah. I remember thinking, oh, Sarah's on there. Oh, that'll be boring." Anyway. <laughs>
1: We yeah, we weren't we weren't good friends. And I think this is oh know, fate synchronicity. It's her wicked sense of humour because Marco is actually the probably most perfect person for me to be with in that instant. He's one of the few people I know, if he doesn't get embarrassed, that he, he just Too doesn't late. have the capacity to lie. Like however brutally true it is, he will tell you. So like I, you know, I was drinking way too much at this stage because I'd fallen apart. And you know, most people are like, oh no, no, you're not too bad. It wasn't too bad. I would wake up in the morning. Michael would come in my cabin and he'd be like, "Here's the chronological order of everything <laughs> you did. You were Sarah. You need to get a handle on this. This was terrible." And I would literally the shame. And I was, oh, but that's one of the things I love about Michael. I know I can always go to and get the truth from. And I think that was forged. In the Gulf, because when I came back, Mike was probably the only person that literally saw through the mask I put on at that time and went, I don't think you're okay, Sarah. Do you want to talk about it? And I didn't at the time and I probably yeah, the blew was, no, him of off.
2: Course, yeah.
1: But he still in that moment, he recognised on a deeper level than what I guess was happening. And that was really strange for me because I guess through the Olock workup and things, we'd sort of started bonding, didn't we? I started to respect him as an officer of the watch. I started to respect him as a person and... Baptism under fire, I guess.
2: It was a bonding experience, yeah, going through all that stuff together.
3: So when did your deployment in the Gulf end and how was the journey home?
2: I think we got back in about March of uh, 2002. The Navy used to do things called up top trips and they were trips to Southeast Asia so that's what we did on the way home and it was a lot of fun from what I remember the um, the pressure was really off like as soon as we got a out
1: release of release valve, wasn't yeah, it mm-hmm.
2: Yeah as soon as you get out of um, basically through the Strait of Hormuz it's all pretty much plain sailing it's um there's still difficult parts like there's a lot of shipping through some of the straits that we went through like the Strait of Malacca and Piracy through and- Singapore yeah, yeah and you still have a, a heightened posture but it's nothing compared to the the daily grind of being up in the gulf so it was a fun trip back
1: yeah it was fun um, for me um I guess I was grappling with what had happened for me I couldn't Literally at that time I couldn't face the thought of pulling back up into Sydney Harbour and having a crowd of people and the big deal. So I actually left the ship in Cairns, which was our last port before we got back to Sydney.
3: Michael, let's talk about your naval career after Canimbla.
2: Uh, it was a bit of a hodgepodge, actually. I remember saying to someone at about um, when I got off So I, I actually wanted to resign when I um, when we got back, and I thought, oh, yeah, I've done enough, sort of thing, done an operational deployment. But I know something just changed, and I thought I'll I'll stay in. And I'd always wanted to do like the pointy end. You know, there's no point in being in the navy if you're not uh, sailing fast ships and um, doing all that sort of stuff. So from then on, I wanted to. Um, become a principal warfare officer. So I did what I needed to do to do that. I went to HMAS Melbourne for a little while after that. I broke my shoulder. So we were doing another workup to go to the Gulf again. I broke my shoulder while we were doing training for boarding. So I just fell into one of the boats and landed barely on my arm. And from then on, I spent a few months ashore. And then I got offered by the posting guy to go to a patrol boat. And I'd always thought that if I go to a patrol boat, so that'll be the end of me because it's <laughs> just too much fun. And I won't want to do Um, and it it turned out that that was true, but I didn't know that at the time. So uh, anyway, I went off, uh, did uh, executive officers course and went off and did um, time in Gladstone for a while as the uh, XO, the executive officer.
3: And you two have another brief reunion. Uh, when you're posted to a patrol boat?
2: It wasn't brief. We were up in Cairns, so I was based in Cairns (laughs) Cairns for uh, two years, I think, and Sarah was at Mm. the same time as well. It was um, quite unusual, really, because Cairns was like a bit of an outpost. If you're on patrol boats, you're pretty much in Darwin, Mm. and Sarah was in the hydrographic fleet, so that just happened to have been based out of Cairns, so we probably should never have seen each other again. I should have been a PWO, and Sarah should have been a hydrographic officer or a droggy, as they're called. Mm,
3: Droggy. Michael, can you share a bit of a story you had on board the patrol boat?
2: Yeah, so we were mostly doing um, fisheries boardings but also the um, border protection as well. There was one day where we were seeking permission from the Australian Fisheries Management Authority or AFMA to apprehend a vessel and it was a a big vessel. So in terms of um, fishing vessels, it's what's known as a mothership. So they had about 10 tonne of fish on board and they were acting as the mothership for a lot of smaller vessels. So it was like a big catch for us. And we'd been on board for a long time because uh, we were waiting for that um, approval from AFMA to apprehend it and take it back to Australia. And the crew was getting a bit ratty. And when I eventually told the master of the ice boat, as it's called, the big mother ship, he was getting apprehended. He he got agitated and he started running around, um, punching his crew. Like he punched one guy and knocked him over, and then punched another one and knocked him overboard. Like actually knocked him off the vessel. And it was at night. It's quite dark, uh, and there's sharks around because they've been fishing. So I looked at my um, my comms number, who's the communications guy that's with me, and and said let's um, get him out of there. So we waded into the crew because there's about fifteen crew on board. Waded into the crew and pulled him, uh, pulled the captain back, pulled the master back and as we were trying to handcuff him we're on the on the deck wrestling with this guy and again a whole lot of things happening all at the same time. The crew member that went overboard has been pulled back in in board and me and my partner are trying to handcuff this guy and I just, hear drop the spear, mate, and turn around and the biggest guy that I've got on board, like he's about 6'5 and and enormous, he's standing there with a spear pointed right at his stomach. Uh, One of the crew members had picked up a spear off the deck that was um, sort of hidden underneath some, some nets and stuff and had it pointed right at his stomach. I, and again, in seconds, I looked at my opposite number and said, have you got him, turned around, pulled my weapon out um, and pointed it at the guy with the spear. And I said, drop the spear, drop it. And then I said it in Indonesian. So I'd, I'd learned Indonesian at the academy, I said, drop the spear or I'll shoot you. And he just dropped it, like just point blank, dropped it and sat down and it was like nothing had ever happened. And I said to the guy that's standing next to me, the one who would had the spear pointed at him, I said, apply safety, holster your weapon. He goes, oh, X, I only um, pulled out my baton. I went, oh. And it still sends chills down my spine to think that, that this guy had a spear pointed at us or at, you know, at my um, my guy and he only had a baton. So the spear was about six foot long and his baton's, I don't know, 18 inches or something, so not, not big enough. And he could have had a spear through him. And I was the only one stopping him doing that because I had a weapon pointed at him.
3: And you were speaking in Indonesian. Yeah,
2: and it was probably lucky that we did that. I mean, he would have gotten the idea, but I had a spot picked out on his chest where the bullet was going to go. Uh, And I remember seeing out the corner of his eye, uh, sorry, corner of my eye, his um, big toe. And if his big toe had moved, so if he was going to take a
3: step forward, I would have shot him. So uh, he came pretty close to buying it that night. Well, let's leave that encounter and we'll travel north to London. Okay, Sarah, tell us what happened there.
1: So I uh, ended up in London, basically, yeah, as Michael said, when we came back from the Gulf, I just felt like a failure in myself and I didn't, even though everyone was saying to me, oh, you'd be such a fabulous PWO, Sarah, and I remember Dave McCord at the time literally sitting me in his cabin, the captain, and saying, don't throw your life away, yeah, Sarah. You're making a big mistake. <laughs> you're making Stop, a big yeah. mistake. And I just, but the idea of warfare I just didn't want to do anymore and I... I guess at that stage I wasn't ready to leave the military, so I sort of looked around and said, this is terrible, but what's the most unwarfare job I can do in the military? And it was, bless all my droggy friends that may be listening, it was hydrographer. There's a part of me too that's always loved science. So, yeah, I became a hydrographer, which is basically charting the ocean in three dimensions so I loved the science it was a break from anything military lots of up top time as we call all through New Guinea all all those exciting really uncharted places which I just loved and I really enjoyed it and then to become an international hydrographer basically it's the courses in the University of Plymouth in the UK so yeah off to my husband now at this stage so we're off to the UK together to yeah do my joggy Degree, as we call it. Yeah, it's funny. So by this stage, I've basically been promoted and I'm a lieutenant commander. So you'd think by this stage, you know, a major equivalent in the army, I'm. you know, you think you would have le- left a lot of that sexual harassment type stuff behind. And it was interesting for me. I was the only female on the international course uh, I'd sort of started to slow down my drinking a little bit you know I was trying at that stage and we were posted out we're doing um, some metadata GIS type training and we're at this army base and it was a strange time because yeah I I feel like I was starting to transition and you know, I, I decided not to go out drinking with them all. I said, no, you know, I'm going to stay back and just concentrate for once, you know, and do the right thing. And I was in my bed and you, you got to remember at this stage, like, you know, I'm not really a junior officer anymore. I've been in for, you know, 10 odd years, been around the block and we're staying at this army base just outside of London doing this training. And I hear them all come back about, two, three in the morning and they're really, really drunk. And at the time I remember just thinking, oh, shut up, you know, I just want to get some sleep. But the the barracks where we were staying in the officers' quarters had no locks on the doors and so I'm laying in my bed and as a group they all come in to my room. And again, it's it's this underlying thing within the military that you just never quite feel as equal to a male. you just never quite... You, there's always, I don't know, to me, there was always this underlying vulnerability that I felt and they've all come into my room and I could hear them talking You know, I pretended I was still asleep. That's your instinct. Oh, should we drag her out? Should we blah, 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 blah. And I remember like petrified, instantly petrified and thinking I'm in a horrendous situation here. Like there's six blokes in my room in the middle of the night and I'm completely powerless. They're all intoxicated. And I just, <laughs> I call it my big girl panties. I just jumped out. Yeah, you pardon my colourful language. And I just put as much force. And to me, they all sort of giggled and went, oh, sorry, Sarah, you know, just a joke. (laughs) And they all left. And I, I guess I tell this story because it's so relevant to where my head was at at that stage. I didn't report that. I didn't talk about that. I just went, oh, you know these things happen, you know, you you get so indoctrinated into this culture, this drinking culture, and there's no boundaries and inappropriate behaviour really became second nature to me That, that didn't even register to me as inappropriate you know that did not even cross my mind to report that or to and I guess that it's just such a relevant story for me because it shows where I was in relation to my own personal boundary how blurred they'd become within that military environment in trying to fit in and not in not wanting to be the girl you know that we were hearing so much about at the time if you remember it was all about oh she's complaining and oh there's this review you know if you can't be in the military and to this day you know i will still copper women shouldn't be in the military and you know these are from people that aren't even in the military, still an interesting subculture. And I guess I just wanted to share that story because, you know, when you hear these young girls talking about these incidents, and not just girls, these young boys too, like if I'm a lieutenant commander and this is happening to me, you know, these powerless young boys and girls and what has happened to them, you know, these are really, really things that we need to be open and discussing and be giving these kids healing with, yeah.
3: So, Sarah, leaving your experiences in London, you eventually leave the Navy And Michael, you're the same, but Sarah, let's hear your story first.
1: Basically, my body, I think, had started to shut down. I I was suffering things, you know, they were saying fibromyalgia and all these sorts of things. I just ultimately, I think I was probably an alcoholic. I was drinking way too much. I probably, in retrospect, was malnourished, the the typical type things. Just gifted with a good intellect, I guess I covered it very, very well. And it wasn't until, and I'll never forget this man to this day, I walked into HMS Cairns Medical Centre and he was actually a visiting doctor. So he wasn't part of the usual doctor routine and I said to him oh, I'm not feeling well I need some pills I can't even remember and he looked at me and he said oh I don't think you're very mentally well and this poor man I, I sometimes wish I could give him a cuddle and off I went on my rant what right have you to tell me I'm not mentally well I'm perfectly mentally well and not in much more colorful language and he said well I don't think you are and I'm going to stop you going to see and that just, you can't stop me going to sea, I'm perfect, blah, 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 blah. So he did. He stopped me going to sea. Um, and I stayed home and the ship deployed Um, and there was all this buzz because at this stage, I'm not sure if it's still the same, but mental illness is still, you know, seen as weakness. And I was too embarrassed to say he stopped me because he doesn't think I'm mentally well. And this doctor basically forced me to psychiatrists, psychologists, and I started to realise... When a group of people were saying, I don't think you're mentally well, that, oh, perhaps there's something in this. And I started to talk a little bit more. And then the greatest moment, I got pregnant with my daughter. That stopped the alcohol completely because I would never drink when I was pregnant. And that
3: turned your life around.
1: Totally turned my life around. And I started to heal, started to realise, yeah, the generational dysfunction that was running through and I didn't want to do that again. Medically discharged with post-traumatic stress disorder. For a long time, I was too shameful. To speak about that i didn't want to tell people that so basically said oh i got pregnant and left that wasn't the truth the truth i was medically discharged post-traumatic stress disorder then went through the dva process which is a whole other story in itself we know the issues with that process and how we're working to fix that but yeah eventually on a pension now for post-traumatic stress disorder and what i've learned from that is and this is really important for me to get across, I guess, to anyone listening with this. There is no hierarchical structure to trauma. There seems to be this culture still within the military that my trauma is more relevant than your trauma, or you know, I, I saw worse action than you saw, or yours wasn't as scary as You were only in the Navy, you weren't actually in the Navy, shooting people. You were shooting you know, there's this real hierarchical structure. And what I do now is I started Daijo life about five years ago now and I sort of just work with other veterans of trauma and I've learned something really incredible and that trauma is relevant based on your experience. So if you're a guy in a bank that's been bullied and that's your frame of reference, that trauma is relevant to you.
2: Or a woman who's suffered domestic violence. It doesn't matter what causes the trauma. It doesn't matter, yeah. The response is what's important.
1: There's a physical aspect and there's a mental and a a dna aspect and we have to deal holistically with the whole process and the first thing is yeah to release that shame to to be brave enough to tell our story so for me to sit here and you know yes i was in the navy and yes perhaps it wasn't as traumatic as being blown up by a bomb but you know to me this was relevant trauma as a 21 year old woman and what i was experienced and
3: it's affected your life and
1: it's affected my life and you know, if we band together and talk about these stories and support each other so that now other people that I still see so locked in the darkness can feel brave enough to share their stories that they're relevant to.
2: I think getting in early too. like I mm. um, suffered some pretty negative effects. Like I was not sleeping well after the um, fishing boat incident. I was not sleeping well. I was playing this ridiculous computer game over and over again where I was going to win and it takes half an hour and I'd I'd play that all night just so I didn't have nightmares and then I'd get up and and go and watch and work for the day and then have dinner and then go to sleep for a few hours and then get up at like 1am and play this game again. And I was doing that for for months and I just did the same sort of thing as Sarah. I just snapped at my boss one day and it was about six months after I just blew up at him like he asked me where something was, where the the stores were coming in or something like that and I blew up at him and said that's not important. And just him just having that circuit breaker and just saying do you need to see someone? I went "Mm, yeah probably do. And normalising it for me was going to the psychologist and the psychologist hears about what I've been through and just goes, Whoa, that's that's a big deal. You were responsible for that. And I said, Yeah, I was yeah, I was actually. Mm. But I hadn't had that before where someone had just gone, Oh, that that is a pretty serious situation.
1: And maturity, maturity is a big one as you get older and I think you start your own family and you get out in the world and you realise, you know, these are big things to cope with. You know, I look at my dad as a young man and I look at my pop as a young man and then I look at me and, you know, there's fundamentally something we're getting very wrong with our veterans. Like I'm the third generation now and not one of us post coming back from deployment has any form of preemptive medical intervention been taken, any form of preemptive counselling a military deployment to me that that's just insane you know we're sending these young men and women off to war and I'm not sure now I can't comment on if it's gotten better but all I can comment on is the last hundred years in my family certainly hasn't happened and I think fundamentally if we're going to put these people in harm we need to make sure that they're well when they come back and we need to have follow-up care and we need to make sure that they're doing okay, you know. We're lucky enough, Michael and I have a bond with a few other people and we talk. Like I walked around Sydney yesterday and I I saw a lot of people that I'm pretty hand on heart are homeless military veterans. That to me is just inexcusable. Like that should just not be happening. So I think absolutely fundamentally we're still doing something very, very wrong with the mental health treatment of our veterans.
2: For me... I eventually did get to do P-Way course, but it was after um, serving in Gladstone for a while. And that's not the ideal preparation. You kind of need to be in a um, in a warship and have, a, have that sort of warfare aspect surrounding you every day. Complicating that fact that at the same time when I was doing P-Way course, my sister was also really ill with cancer. So she actually died two weeks after I... Um, finish, well, I I didn't finish POA course. Um, Funnily enough, uh, going to the hospital every night to see my sister wasn't a a good way of uh, studying for PO course. It's really intense. You have to learn a lot of stuff really quickly. And I wasn't putting in the effort that I needed to. I was going and spending time with my sister instead. So I pulled off PO course and my sister died about two weeks after that. Um, I spent uh, a little bit more time at fleet headquarters after that, and I really enjoyed that. But that was pretty much me running down like I'd I'd um You'd done your time. I'd done my time, yeah. Um and just wanted to do something else. So I joined um Work Cover or Safe Work New South Wales it is as it is now, shortly after um leaving the The Navy. I think a lot of um, the military stuff or certainly the Navy stuff prepared me quite well for that. I didn't see safety as an add-on to um, doing your work it was something that was ingrained in what we did and just responding to what Sarah was talking about with um, looking after your people I I can actually prepare my people to deal with the trauma that they go through and the trauma that they see vicariously because they actually do investigations and into fatalities and other serious incidents and I still have the same level of care for them that I did for my uh, sailors when I was in the in the navy and it's um it's something that I take great pride in is, is actually looking after my my people and making sure that they are fit to do the job and and well enough to do the job and I think it helps to be able to prepare them when they know they're going to see something or when we both know that they're going to see something nasty and to normalize their response to that because they're going to get the sleepless nights they're going to have the um, short temper and all those sorts of things afterwards so it helps to guide them through that
3: how do you Look back on your time at the Navy today.
2: Um, I loved every minute of it. So there were there were hard times. There were the times when, you know, I was tired and fraught and all that sort of stuff. But I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the camaraderie and the, the things that we got done. Like the overall purpose of the Navy is to protect Australia's interests abroad and to keep trade routes open because most of the trade in the world is done through maritime traffic. So I enjoyed that overall purpose. I enjoyed Um, working with the people that that I worked with. They were um, uh, dedicated and and smart, strong professionals.
1: Yeah, uh, I guess overwhelmingly probably grateful where I find myself in life now. I don't think I would ever have reached the clear focus now in my life about wanting to give back and help people without all of those experiences that shaped me. The greatest untapped resource in this country is our military veterans. Like you have people that have a level of understanding and empathy and knowledge of the world. You just can't train people in an environment like what the military gives. You know, it, it, to me, it's just such a wasted resource that we're not utilising these people in even giving back to the country and giving back to youth workers. And there's so many opportunities for these people that have been through these traumas. So for me, overwhelmingly now, I'm in a place where I'm just grateful for all of those experiences, for my family's experiences, so that they really, without them, I would, wouldn't have become who I am today. And the friendship, the friendship's just amazing. You know, you can't, you'll never have a better friend than one you go to war Mm. with, I suppose.
3: That's what they say. Sarah and Michael, you two have both been through quite a lot. Thank you both for serving our country and I'm sorry for the hardships that you've both experienced. Thank you especially, Sarah, for sharing so much about your family and your childhood. It's been a pleasure to speak with you both and thank you for coming on Life on the Line and sharing your wonderful and great stories. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Thank you.
0: That was Angus Horden speaking with Sarah Turner and Michael Wright. Thanks go especially to Sarah for travelling from Queensland for the interview. You can find out more about Sarah's current work and her publications at dijolife.com. That's d-i-j-o-life.com, and also look them up on Facebook. You can find us online too. We're www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com and on email at podcast at lifeonthelinepodcast.com. You can reach out to us on social media as well. We're on Facebook and Instagram at Life on the Line Podcast and on Twitter at L-O-T-L-P-O-D. And if you know a veteran serviceman or servicewoman with a story to tell, please get in touch. We would love to have them on the podcast. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions, artwork by Big Cat Design, music by Dan Van Workhoven. Thanks for listening,
2: and lest we forget.